Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Juno, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Carson Vaughn. Vaughn is the author of the book, Zoo Nebraska, The Dismantling of an American Dream, which focuses on a small town zoo in Royal Nebraska and its eventual downfall. One of the main characters in the book is Dick Haskin. Haskin is the man who originally started the zoo back when the zoo was just a house trailer with a baby chimpanzee. Haskin's story is hugely important to the book, but one he wasn't willing to tell. Vaughn spent seven years reporting around Haskin before the man finally agreed to talk with him. Until you're actually sitting there across from somebody, there's so much of that like essence and atmosphere that you just don't pick up. And then you also can't say, like, Dick Haskin was thinking this in this moment unless you know, Dick Haskin tells you that (laughs) in that moment. Vaughn started reporting and writing this book as an undergraduate student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He then took the project to graduate school, where it was his master's thesis in the University of North Carolina Wilmington's MFA creative writing program. He was in the minority there, a creative nonfiction student working on a piece of narrative journalism. But he found that the other creative writers poets and fiction writers often helped him see things a little differently. would get memoirists or fiction writers or poets who would suggest things that just as somebody with a journalism background, I never would have suggested. Yeah, right. you know, they would have a great idea for how to insert some lyricism into this part to keep the reader engaged, even though that was a very dry, dense, reported part of it. You know, just they had ideas that I wanted. Now, full disclosure here. I'm also a graduate of the UNCW MFA program. I finished up back in 2005. Despite the time difference, Vaughn and I had some of the same great creative writing faculty helping us. One of those people, Philip Gerard, will be an upcoming guest on the podcast soon. Zoo Nebraska was published by Little A, an imprint of Amazon Publishing that focuses on literary fiction and nonfiction. Vaughn is a freelance journalist who writes frequently about the Great Plains. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Paris Review Daily, Outside, Pacific Standard, Travel and Leisure, The Atlantic, Vice, and Runner's World, among others. As usual, we've linked to Zoo Nebraska and more of Vaughn's stories on our website. You can find that at www. GangryThePodcast.com. Carson, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. I appreciate it. Can we start things off? I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about your book, Zoo Nebraska. What's the book about? Sure. Um, well, Zoo Nebraska, um, I say this topically, it's not giving anything away, but sort of the, the initial seed of it is that I found out that this 
small town called Royal, Nebraska, 65 people had a chimpanzee escape at a small roadside zoo in uh, 2005. And so when I heard that little nugget of news, I thought, you know, this is a strange novelty item. I looked into it a little bit. Um, but very quickly I learned that how the zoo was formed and who started the zoo and what led up to this escape was a much bigger story than just your little, you know, news blip. And so um, ultimately the book became kind of a look at small town America and how they thrive or fail to thrive um, based on, you know, the attractions they have in town. It's, it's an incredibly interesting story, and I enjoyed it. I, I devoured the book in about two days um, uh, oh, when I read it. It was fantastic. Um, how, how did you—you you said you, you heard about it. How did you first—how did you first learn about, about the, the chimp escape? Um, uh, how, did, how did you first yeah. learn about that? Yeah, sure. Well, I was actually—let's uh, see. I, was, I think I was a junior in uh, college at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I had just— started dating a girl who is now my wife. Uh, and she was from another small town in that same part of the state as Royal called Plainview. And I went back to visit her family one weekend. Um, and we were all in the car together and we drove through the town of Royal. And my wife just kind of offhandedly said, oh, hey, that's where Reuben got shot. <laughs> as <laughs> if like that was common knowledge that everyone knew about. I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, and then her family kind of gave me the backstory about how these chimpanzees used to live in this small zoo there. Um, and it was strange because we actually later drove back through and there was a sign on the chain link fence uh, right outside of Royal that was an advertisement for the auction that was about to happen for the zoo. Um, and I was still, as a junior undergrad journalism student, digging around for what I wanted my honors thesis to be. And I thought, well, hell, you know, maybe this is something. So the next week I drove right back to Royal um, and covered the auction there and met some more people. And it just kind of felt like the more people I talked to, the more I learned about Royal as a community and the more I learned about the zoo itself. There was just there were too many strange elements and too many fascinating characters there to not keep digging. Yeah. So you started this uh, as an undergraduate. Yeah, I think I started in, I want to say, 20, 2009 or 2010. And uh, I turned in just like the roughest draft possible. It was basically like a story outline <laughs> for my uh, <laughs> honors thesis at the time. And then it became my uh, master's thesis at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington after that. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was it, though? I mean, because obviously you started a while ago. Um, what was it about... Uh, about the story and about the people and maybe about the town itself that I yeah. guess obviously it stuck with you, right? I mean, because you kept working on it. <laughs> There's a lot of it stuff did. I started I think... writing in college that I, I gave away because I didn't care that much about. So Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that those are what normally happened to me. This <laughs> one was strange. I don't know if you've had this before, Matt. I don't know if every reporter has or not, but there was like, at the time, I could not articulate it at all. It seemed very abstract to me, but I had talked to a couple people at the auction and a couple people in the town, and frankly, they were just strange enough. Like, one person seemed like a little too coy, or the next person seemed strangely defensive. There was just like a certain tension that was already kind of present in the community when I was there. And to be honest, as like a young, naive kid, that was both like sort of intimidating, but also 
kind of gave me the itch to keep going back and asking questions. And that itch for Royal Nebraska never really went away. Like, like I said, you know, the more I talked to some of these people, the, the stranger and more interesting they became. Right. Right. Um, wh- who was the first person you, you said the first, um, you went to the auction. Was that literally the first thing that you did? Yeah, that was the first time I had ever stepped foot inside the zoo. And obviously, even at that point, all the animals were gone. It was just kind of the bones of the zoo at that point. But that was the first time I had really gone to Royal and started interviewing people. Um, And that was strange, you know, because the people that show up to a country auction for a dead zoo are, you know, their own subset of people to begin with. So, you know, we got a, you know, you kind of what you would expect in rural Nebraska, you know, there was a lot of farmers and ranchers, but then there were also a lot of uh, members of the Amish community that lived nearby. There were some people who uh, weren't necessarily announcing themselves this way, but people who had volunteered at the zoo or maybe served on the zoo board that kind of just wanted to see, you know, how their zoo was going to end. And so just a lot of different players involved, kind of a strange mix of people. Do you remember who the very first person that you talked to was uh, who ends up in the book? Um, I'm not sure if that's in the book or not. I think probably the first, the first person I had any sort of substantial conversation with about the zoo, I think was probably, uh, uh, Valda Young and then her husband Marvin later on. And they, uh, owned a farm outside of Royal and, uh, Marvin was actually kind of thrown into the presidency of the zoo, um, there at the very end. So they, uh, were fairly welcoming to me and, you know, encouraged me to keep digging a little more and connected me uh, to some other players there. I think they were probably the first. Yeah. How many people did you run into who were like, um, why, why do you want to write about this? Or, or maybe yeah. like, there's nothing to write about. Go away. <laughs> oh yeah. Like almost all of them. <laughs> I mean, that's, that first auction was so weird. I don't think I'm doing a great job explaining it here, but there was, plenty of people who saw me walking around with the camera who asked me like if I had a press badge, which is a weird question to get (laughs) in rural Nebraska, you know, like there's no reason that I needed a press badge. There's no reason that, you know, it was just, you could tell that people were already kind of on the defensive. And so I was getting a lot of strange looks at that auction. Um, in their defense, they would totally soften up once I actually started talking to them. But, uh, yeah, definitely, I was a little bit of a fish out of water and they could sense it. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah. So I, I guess, um, if there's a main character, uh, in the book, maybe other than, than Ruben, the chimp, um, yeah. uh, it would be Dick, uh, Haskin. Um, can you talk about who, who he was and, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, I start off with talking about who, who Dick was. Sure. Uh, well, Dick Haskin is the guy who originally founded the zoo, but I guess a brief backstory on Dick. He was born and raised um, in small town northeast Nebraska, not in Royal, but in another small town nearby. Um, and eventually he did move into Royal, became, you know, a local kid. He watched the Jane Goodall documentary in elementary school, grew fascinated with chimpanzees, um, A lot of people did during that time. This was, you know, 70s, early 80s. But usually that's a a phase that people in that era kind of went through. Um, You know, Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall were huge at the time. But Dick's fascination never really left him. And so he followed that to the University of Nebraska and cobbled together sort of as close as you could get to a primatology degree. They don't offer that at 
uh, University of Nebraska Lincoln, but you know he studied biology and psychology, I think, and some other things. Um, eventually, found a job working with the apes at the Lincoln Children's Zoo, um, and again, one thing leads to another. He ended up with um, custodianship of a baby chimpanzee that he then took back home. Uh, to his small town of 65 people and turned that into what he was calling the Midwest Primate Research Center at the time. This was in 1985, I think. And uh, it was literally just a trailer home off the side of the highway that had his one baby chimpanzee in it. Mm-hmm. He, uh, for, for the book, uh, he took a little while for to, to kind of open up to you, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. Dick was... Um, you know, his his chimp, Reuben, that he had raised from birth was eventually shot and killed. And when that happened, uh, Dick went into a little bit of a tailspin, you know, justifiably. I mean, that was he had put his life into that chimpanzee and starting that zoo. And so it threw him off big time when that chimp was shot. And so Dick kind of became a hermit after that. Um, he didn't want to talk to me. He didn't want to talk to a lot of people. He kind of retreated to a homestead out in the hills. Um, and went away for a while. And so I had um, tried approaching him when I drove to Royal for the auction. Uh, he wasn't at the auction, but I tried getting a hold of him. He wouldn't answer his phone, wouldn't answer the door, tried getting in touch with family members. They, um, you know, they were not rude, but they said, if Dick doesn't want to talk to you, we don't really either. <laughs> so I kept running into uh, these walls and it took me almost seven years later for him to finally say, uh, yeah, come out and talk to me. But he was certainly not originally um, at all receptive to me talking or asking questions about the zoo. Mm-hmm. Did you ever find out like um, why he finally agreed to, to say, come on out? Uh, you know, he's never really said that to me uh, point blank before. I still am not totally sure why. Um, but, you know, he did tell me that some of his closest friends had told him, you know, that if he wasn't going to, you know, go see a therapist or a psychiatrist or whatever, that at some point he should probably just get some of this material off of his chest. And so I think he did maybe hit a certain threshold where he just thought, you know, it's been long enough and this stuff is still in my mind every day. Maybe it'll help to vent a little bit. Maybe it'll be cathartic for me. Um, He was certainly, entirely candid when we talked, uh, which was great. And then I'm sure, you know, to be honest, I'm sure the fact that I emailed him the last time and said, Hey, this book is going to come out now. Um, <laughs> it's kind of your last opportunity to speak for yourself. And I think that probably triggered something as well. How different would the book have been if, if he never opened up to you? Uh, pretty substantially different. I can tell you that it drove me nuts <laughs> for years that he <laughs> wouldn't talk to me. Um, somehow that didn't, shut down my pursuit though I kept interviewing people around him and doing the best I could to kind of fill in uh that void but it's hard for me to kind of think of the book now I it would have been so so different you know like what it turned into was the story of Royal but a big part of that is following Dick's like internal journey along the way and 
you know, there's just only so much a journalist can do to get those particular thoughts. So without that, you know, I was just missing some of the meat of that material. There really is that that chapter in part one uh, that I think the title is Meet Dick Haskin, maybe. I might be yeah. off a little bit. Um, but that's yeah. a hugely important chapter, right, in, in the book. And, yeah. and I don't think maybe you would have had that as fleshed out um, or maybe not even there, right? Yeah, I mean, that's right. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, that chapter was in place there. Um, yeah, I mean, there was material that I had gotten from, uh, you know, like newspapers and uh, just state reports and that kind of thing. Like I had, I knew pretty accurately, like what the bones, like the structure of Dick's life had been just from, you know, dozens, almost a hundred interviews <laughs> with, you know, people around and reading all the reports and everything. But just until you're actually sitting there across from somebody, there's so much of that like essence and atmosphere that you just don't pick up. And then you also can't say like Dick Haskin was thinking this in this moment, unless, you know, Dick Haskin tells you that <laughs> in that moment. Right. So there's just like a lot of the more nuanced stuff. I definitely didn't have before. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, besides Haskin, uh, what was the biggest challenge that you faced when you were working on this project? Oh, boy. Uh, I would say it was definitely just all the contradictory accounts. I think, to be honest, I was so young, and I don't know if naive is the right word. I mean, I had been freelancing even in college. It's not like I was a totally fresh reporter, but I don't think I had any idea how challenging it was going to be to get dozens of people telling the same story and telling it completely differently. <laughs> you know, right, like right. literally every character in this book had a different take on the events that went down and who was to blame. And, and as a reporter and somebody who takes like no, you know, no pleasure in writing any sort of hit piece or anything like that. Uh, once I started writing it, I realized just how like tricky and difficult it was to suss out one, what is the truth? And two, how to write about all these people, you know, with empathy. Cause I didn't find in my reporting that any of them were bad people but certainly some had made mistakes and some people had certain ideas of other people and so just finding a way to congeal all those contradictory accounts and that he said she said was a big challenge for me uh in the chapter thank you from the town board uh, uh <laughs> which is um towards the end of of part two um, it brings us about two thirds of the way through the book. Basically, mm -hmm. um, you bring us back to, uh, basically where the book starts in the prologue. Um, and, and that's where the chimps at the zoo escaped. Um, right. you do an, an absolutely phenomenal job of showing that in scene. And as I was yeah. reading that, I couldn't like stop thinking like, how did you get all of the details that were necessary mm -hmm. to create that as a, as a narrative scene and not something that, I don't know. How, how, yeah. did, you, how did you do that? That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a great question. And it took so long and I've rewritten that chapter so many times, but I had a couple of great pieces of source material that were obviously a huge help. I couldn't have done it without. Um, one of the first FOIA requests that I had ever filed in my life was to the Nebraska state patrol to get the dash cam video that day. Um, and I originally got, that video sent to me maybe like a year into working on the project, but it had been uh, redacted greatly by the state. Um, I didn't even know that at the time. It was not clear in the video that they had done that. So I had like bits and pieces of video that helped me kind of initially piece it together. But then in doing 
some re-reporting after I sold the book, I went and spoke, interviewed some Nebraska State Patrol people who hadn't talked to me the first time, and they gave me the entire uh, like 45-minute-long dash cam video with none of it bleeped or blurred out or anything like that, um, and that was extremely helpful. So obviously, a stationary dash cam video doesn't show you the whole scene, but there was enough that I could fill in a lot of the blanks using the video. All the other stuff came from all the witness testimonies that the volunteers at the zoo that day and the witnesses of the escape had to write for the Nebraska State Patrol. And so that's when this chapter became this incredibly difficult thing to puzzle together because I had, you know, a dozen witness transcripts and testimonies on top of fragments of a dash cam video on top of, you know, another dozen interviews that I did myself asking people about that day and then trying to, you know, puzzle all those together was just kind of a nightmare that took an incredibly long time. Did that take, was that the hardest chapter to write in the book? Um, I logistically, definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely. But there was, I, I don't think it was probably the chapter that I worried the most about. Um, and by worry, I mean like there are chapters, you know, like I said earlier where, I wanted to make sure that I was telling the truth, but I had two people telling the same story, you know, saying very different things. And those are the chapters that, you know, I think gave me more like pause or more concern while writing. Right. The escape chapter was just, like I said, logistically like a nightmare, just getting like all the, you know, cause I also have, you know, the bullet discharge report from the Nebraska state trooper. And I have the timeline that he filled out, which was, you know, about half matches up with the timeline of what the other state patrol wrote down. And, you know, just, again, a lot of conflicting ideas and elements to that chapter. Yeah. Were you, um, were you still an undergrad when you were doing these FOIA requests or no? Uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I think it was the summer before my senior year of college. I filed that first FOIA request. As a, as a journalism professor, you would be my dream student, I think. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, well, I, I could th- it was, uh, if I had had an opportunity to do it beforehand, I don't remember it, but I just remember being so strangely fascinated with this weird little town that I was taking extreme efforts at the time to just get anything and everything I could. Right, right. Were you, uh, were you a zoo person before you ever started on this? Like a person who liked no, to go to zoos? Not, no, I mean, I like animals in average amount. <laughs> I would say that, you know, I was certainly not like the kid who was begging my parents to drive me to the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha every weekend. Like that wasn't anything I would have said was my passion or hobby at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's still not to be honest with you. When people ask, you know, like why I decided to write a book about this, it really had nothing to do with animals or chimpanzees. I was always from the first, you know, the first day I reported just fascinated by the community elements. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, you know, as somebody who, who covered the Columbus zoo and aquarium, when I worked at the, the Columbus dispatch, I was like, zoo, that's not a zoo, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> You're right. uh, but, uh, right. no, yeah. Yeah. I'm, well, how big is the Columbus? Zoo? Uh, it's, it's, it's major, the biggest right? zoo in the country now. Uh, yeah. it has the yeah. largest, uh, att- annual attendance of any zoo in the country. It surpassed San Diego, wow, really? um, back when I was, when I was covering it. Um, wow. Uh, and it's bigger than like the Henry Dorley. Well, I guess, yeah, maybe size wise, you're probably right. Yeah, uh, it's it's massive, um, and yeah. it's amazing, and, and it's one of the the things that I miss since I moved to Connecticut, away from Ohio. But uh, 
uh, I'll find a way to get back at some point in time. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. But that's a good point. I mean, that was one of the things that was, I think, kind of nice to have in the book was that because Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo is always ranked incredibly highly for world zoos, like to have a world-class zoo three hours away from this tiny little menagerie helped give some really nice contrast, I think, right. in thinking about, I mean, you're right. right. To call it a zoo even feels like a stretch. Right, right, definitely. Um, well, this is uh, uh, this is Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Carson Vaughn, uh, author of Zoo Nebraska, The Dismantling of an American Dream, which is published by Little A. We're going to take a short break. Uh, when we return, we'll have more from uh, Carson. Uh, this is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. It's also brought to you by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangra the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Carson Vaughn, the author of Zoo Nebraska, The Dismantling of an American Dream, uh, which has just been published by Little A in New York. Uh, Carson, we have uh, some similarities in our lives, uh, and that's that we're both reporters uh, who went on to get an MFA in creative writing, um, and both from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington uh, at that. Um, what was your reporting life uh, like before you headed uh, down to UNCW? Um, it was... Minimal. I mean, I was a, I studied journalism at the University of Nebraska, and I had been, you know, I recognized that writing was kind of my passion or whatever, starting in, in high school. But I had started, you know, freelancing for a little bit of extra money in college, um, earned the journalism degree. I had also uh, founded the University of Nebraska's first satirical newspaper. The regular student newspaper there is called the Daily Nebraskan. And I started something called the Dailier Nebraskan, which, you know, started off to be fun, but became like, uh, like my entire college career, you know? <laughs> so I spent a lot of time, uh, roping writers together and putting out this humor magazine in college. Um, so I was studying like real journalism on the one hand and then in my free time putting together the, the satirical newspaper. Well, uh, what made you want to get an MFA then? Uh, well, I knew that... I kind of felt like ever since high school, even like I was always juggling these two different things of loving to report. And, you know, I loved that hunt for truth. But on the other hand, you know, I loved reading fiction and I loved creative writing and I loved having that freedom. Um, And so it wasn't, I don't think until maybe uh, again, probably a junior or senior year of college that I started taking some of the, you know, upper level, more like narrative journalism courses when I realized like, Oh shit, like, you can write something like a novel with the facts, <laughs> you know, like I learned that that was, uh, that, that kind of writing existed in the world. And then I kind of got hooked into that and 
Um, I guess that left me with two options, go to grad school for journalism or go to grad school for uh, creative writing, or I guess I could have just gone to work for a newspaper, but um, I think I always knew I wanted to get a master's. Uh, So I decided to study creative nonfiction writing at UNCW, um, and that's when I realized that I was one of the few reporters in an MFA program. (laughs) That's what I was going to ask you. Um, uh, Again, I, I, I was at UNCW from 2002 to 2005, uh, and I did that following, I had been a daily newspaper reporter for four years um, before that mm-hmm. at, at a small town um, daily. And uh, and when I was at UNCW, um, way 15 years ago, more than that now, um, it was very, well, at least nonfiction, and I think this is not just UNCW, I think it's MFA programs in general. Um, the nonfiction programs are very memoir-centered. Um, oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and I say that as somebody who w- was a reporter and went to grad school to write a memoir. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, but your book is, is not memoir. I mean, not at all. Right. I mean, it's no, straight up narrative no. journalism. And so how what was that like for you to be working on that um, yeah. in an MFA program where so much is focused on personal essay, um, right. memoir, um, uh, you know, that that type of writing? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was very interesting. I mean, I have only great things to say about my peers and professors, but I also will admit that there were times, and by times I mean literally every workshop that I submitted any of my reporting to, where, you know, you just inevitably knew that the first question you were going to get during workshop was, where are you in this story? (laughs) Where is the I? I mean, if I, I truly couldn't tell you the number of times I heard that. In my master's program. And then, you know, you're also, you know, as a nonfiction writer yourself, you know that there are just like certain things that you have to kind of do (laughs) when you're, uh, you know, working off interviews and reportage and that kind of thing. And, you know, you would just get questions from writers in the class or suggestions of things to do that just didn't make sense for reportage. Um, And so you, you know, oftentimes I would you know, say yes, but, or just find a polite way to, you know, back out of that (laughs) question. So, um, yeah, I mean, definitely on the other side of that though, you know, you would get memoirists or fiction writers or poets who would suggest things that just as somebody with a journalism background, I never would have suggested, you know, they would have a great idea for how to insert lyricism into this part to keep the reader engaged, even though that was a very dry, dense reported part of it, you know, just, they had ideas that I wanted to give. So I, it worked both ways, I think. But um, there were just times when you felt, again, a little bit a little bit out of place as a reporter there. I know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I get uh, – uh, I, I totally get that. Um, but you also, uh, at UNCW, have Philip Gerard and David Gessner, which they, they, right. they do reporting as well, which w- was helpful. Can, can you talk about how they were able to help you? Uh, yeah. Full disclosure, they incredibly helped me as well when I was a student. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both of those guys you just mentioned uh, were huge for me. I mean, they were they were great. And it was, I guess, the caveat to what I was saying earlier was that I did most of the time have somebody at least at the head of the room who could step in and say, "Well, actually, like when you're reporting, this often happens," and they would be great at giving context to the rest of the workshop on, you know, why I kind of make that certain move or that certain move or or whatever. So. 
Yeah, I mean, both David and Philip have done quite a bit of reporting for their own books, and so they certainly knew where I was coming from. I should mention that— In fact, um, I think— Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I know um, when I talked to David Gessner, as soon as I got to UNCW, I think when he gave me the call saying I got into UNCW, uh, David had just expressed some enthusiasm for getting— um, somebody with a reporting background into the program. You know, I think he was looking for that and recognized it in nonfiction that was sort of in growing demand. Right, right. I'm going to tell you this is how old I am. Um, David <laughs> Gessner was not at UNCW when I started the program in 2002. Um, his first <laughs> year was my second year in the in the MFA program. So that's he's wow, now like okay. uh, he's embedded there now. Um, but uh, that's how <laughs> that's now how old I am. Um, I should also note, mention that Philip Gerard is going to be a guest on the podcast here coming up as they're getting ready to re-release Cape Fear Rising, and he's got the new oh, Civil War great. book coming out. So a um, little promo for a future episode right there. Um, yeah, that is great. How the diff, uh, I mean, I'm also curious about um, the distance, because you were a long way away from Nebraska um, when yes. you were in the program. So um, uh, what impact, if any, did that have on as you were writing and, and doing, obviously, reporting never stops. you got to keep still finding stuff out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was the distance an issue? Um, yes and no. I mean, you know, I worked on the books for 10 years, but it was off and on for mm -hmm. 10 years. I had done a pretty substantial amount of reporting before I ever left Nebraska. Um, and then I was really fortunate uh, I think it was maybe a year into the program. I and I don't remember what it's called anymore, but it was basically um, a scholarship, like a travel scholarship, to you know be able to go home and do some more reporting. So I took that money and flew back home to Nebraska and spent a couple more weeks uh, reporting in Royal. And because my family is still in Nebraska and my in-laws live nearby Royal, um, it seemed like a couple times a year, even while I was in North Carolina, I was making it back to Royal. And then, you know, I would, I kept doing phone interviews and stuff along the way. Right, also. right. You mentioned a, a little bit ago that there were times, obviously, when poets or, or short story, uh, you know, fiction writers would have some insights um, that, that was helpful um, mm -hmm. uh, while you were there, like in a workshop or something. Did you take any uh, secondary genre classes like, like poetry or fiction while you were there? Yeah, I was able to. I don't think I ever took any poetry courses. Um, it's never been my strong suit, though. Now that I'm a little older, some, I think it would be really fun. But right. I did take a uh, fiction workshop. Let's see. I think I, no, I took two fiction workshops, one with uh, Nina de Gramont and the other with Rebecca Lee. And both of them were incredible. And I love it. What uh, I'm curious, um, uh, what how did those help you? Because I, I could see, like, I, I had an idea that you took classes like that um, uh, mm -hmm. when I was reading the scene that we talked about a little bit ago, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Did, what did you take away from those fiction classes that has helped you as a narrative journalist? Yeah, well, um, that's a really good question. It's hard to pinpoint just one. I guess I will say at the outset, one thing I did realize by taking those fiction courses is, uh, and it's a practice that I remain today, when I get stuck in my nonfiction writing, I find that switching over and writing a little bit of fiction just kind of like clears my brain. You know, it feels like an entirely different exercise sometimes and having the freedom to not have to look at like a million transcripts while writing and just heading straight through a narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it refreshes me when I go back 
to the nonfiction stuff. But then there are also just, you know, like refrains or whatever that you would hear in fiction workshops that I could then carry over into my own narrative nonfiction writing. You know, like I remember Clyde always used to say, get a relationship in there as quickly as you can, you know, like have people interacting. Right. Um, which is very simple, you know, but I would think about those things and, you know, take that into my journalistic life and try to incorporate those where I could. Right. And, and you mentioned um, Clyde, Clyde Edgerton, I'm guessing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Clyde Edgerton. Yeah, amazing <laughs> uh, Southern novelist uh, who I actually had for a nonfiction workshop when I was there because his memoir had yeah. just come out. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so uh, with yeah. the book, well, and there, go ahead. I should also, I was just going to say Matt. there was also, you know, like, there's just certain things that you don't always talk about, you know, certainly in like a journalism school, but like, you know, I would think about things like, you know, psychic distance or just point of view and your typical, like more fiction terminology that you don't get in a J school, but those all became like really important tools for me once I started writing the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when I started the MFA program, I didn't know uh, for, for better or worse, um, what narrative journalism was, you know, and I went down mm-hmm. there to write a memoir. And then I got through the program and I took fiction classes as well. Um, and then I was like, I was eager to get back to newspapers because I wanted to like start playing with this like new right. way of writing that I had never thought about right. before. And then it was once I got to the Columbus dispatch that I um, actually happened upon gangry.com, um, which I stole their name. Well, I didn't steal it. They gave <laughs> yeah. it to me. Um, but you know, this opened up this world um, of, of, of telling true stories, reporting, um, but all then writing in a way that is, is different from what I had been raised as an, as a journalism undergrad myself. Right. So absolutely. And I, you know, like, I guess I, mine was sort of the opposite in that I had never taken a workshop in my life. Um, even though I got an English degree in college too, I had never been in an actual creative writing workshop until I got to UNCW. Yeah. 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 So the book is out now. Um, are you working on any other projects that you can talk about? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I've been full-time freelancing for, I don't know, I always say a different number, I think six or seven or eight years, somewhere in there. Um, but I have been for the last, I think four years now been a little bit stuck on a strange beat, um, in the world of cowboy poetry. (laughs) I flew to Elko, Nevada in February of 2016, uh, to shadow my second cousin who was a cowboy poet in Nebraska, but he had been invited to the national cowboy poetry gathering. Um, and I convinced the New Yorker to let me fly out and shadow him at this thing and write a little piece on cowboy poetry for them. And I thought that would be a quick little, you know, fun one-off thing. Um, but I kind of fell in love with the, everything about it. I love the town of Elko. There were a million characters involved at this that just intrigued me a lot. And so now I've written about cowboy poetry for, uh, you know, the New Yorker, the Atlantic in these times, um, just a whole bunch of different places. And, uh, I kind of just keep doing it. So I'm, I haven't necessarily, uh, called it a book yet, but I think that might be where I'm heading. Oh, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. And good luck on that. Um, well, Zoo, Nebraska, The Dismantling of an American Dream is out now. Buzz Bissinger called the book stunning, and Susan Orlean said it's a marvelous, meaningful book. And I would completely agree with both of those um, uh, sentiments. Carson, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. This was fun. I've been talking with Carson Vaughn, the author of Zoo, Nebraska. 
The Dismantling of an American Dream. The book was published by Little A, an imprint of Amazon Publishing. As usual, we've linked to the book and more of Vaughn's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Our music comes from Audio Nautics. The promos and sponsorship messages were voiced by Mimi Lachlan and Gracie Eldrenkamp. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.